Kia ora no koutou katoa toa, a koronga nei ki tō tātou toa ngā Pacifica me konei ia mātou i te reiti o Nutsireni, kwa au teia kokoroi Hawkins. Coming up... It's another controversial decision. Executive government has become very much dictatorial. Transparency Solomons condemns the government's interference in the operations of the country's national broadcaster. Also... Successive governments have played lip service. Uh, in addressing serious national security issues, but with no avail. A former Papua New Guinea army commander says there's a lack of political will to address gun violence in PNG, and... We are now expecting the region to grow by 4.7% this year. The Pacific economy receives a much-needed boost from tourists returning to the islands. Transparency Solomon Islands says the Prime Minister's recent decision to revoke the national broadcaster's state-owned enterprise status is a direct assault on freedom of speech in the country. Manasseh Songovare and officials from his government have been playing down the impact of the decision to revert the corporation to being a statutory government body. They say it's not having any impact on the impartiality and objectivity of the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation. But Transparency Chief Executive Ruth Lilongula says it was clearly done after the Prime Minister and members of his cabinet publicly criticised the station for airing a series of talkback shows in which women and youth leaders questioned some of the controversial decisions made by the current administration. And straight after that, uh, those were happening in June, um, the, the Young People's One. And then on June 27, the government brought in this uh, extraordinary uh, gazette to remove SIBC from as a state-owned enterprise. And this means that uh, they will no longer receive um, the subventions. Um, But the most important um, uh, point as far as transparency is uh, concerned is restricting people's ways, activism and space and medias, and then, and that um, this uh, SIBC will become a fully controlled uh, government uh, mouthpiece where it will deny people their democratic right to share their views or to get um, their views to the government. Not only that, but uh, the educational programs, the church programs, these now are at the mercy of um, uh, government decisions. Yeah, these these are the implications or the impacts of this decision that has uh, made us uh, question this move and it is not a genuine move. SIBC, as far as we're concerned, we have consulted the ICT uh, policies. They have not uh, broken that, but these talkback shows are just part of the SIBC program. The government owns talkback shows uh, NGOs, all talkback shows, and all of this. And for them to get this one out, because the people of this country not being listened to, SRBC facilitated people's voices to be heard by the government as resulted in this move, which is much more dangerous. And also, it's another controversial decision. Executive government has become a very, very much dictatorial but also saying that SIBC is not unifying uh, just because people are criticizing or SIBC carries those news and facilitates people's ways as well as government's ways. They have not denied government their ways. 
to accuse it of not unifying the country, that's not their job. Their job is to educate, to entertain, and to support people's activism and uh, uh, oasis in, in media. One of the reports after uh, this change, uh, obviously, has been uh, that staff at the SRBC have been instructed that the government will now be vetting applications to do these talkback shows. So that that's quite evident that that might have been a one of the main main sort of targets. It, it's ironic, though, isn't it, that the the talkback format is very popular with the government in terms of its messaging and, and, I guess, being very open about fielding questions from the public and all of this kind of business. So I, I, I just thought it was ironic that they then are unhappy that other people are sort of following suit. Yeah. I mean, when you really look at it, he was quoting a lot of... Um you know, international instruments and all of that. But it tells to look at Chapter 2 of the Constitution. Chapter 2 of the Constitution, which is freedom of speech and the human rights that belongs to citizens in this, this country. And it is true, mostly it is true, SIBC, that uh, people have been able to to raise issues as well as not only raise issues, but they also make suggestions as to what they think should be happening in this country. So, uh, for TSI, we we see SIBC as supporting that uh, chapter of the Constitution, the Chapter 2, as well as uh, keeping the government informed that uh, people would like to be heard. But when that is not possible, they go to all means. But so far, as far as we have assessed all that is going on in SIBC. It, it, there is nothing. It's it's a it's a simple democratic uh, process and people exercising their democratic rights. Seventeen years ago, former Papua New Guinea Defence Force Commander Jerry Singerok produced a report for government detailing 244 recommendations to control guns in the community. But as the elections have shown, gun-related violence is more out of control than it has ever been. Major General Singerok told Don Wiseman that since 2005, politicians have lacked the political will to do something about it. Well, it boils down to lack of uh, political will at the strategic, the highest level. Successive governments have uh, played lip service uh, in addressing serious security issues, national security issues, but with no avail. The guns control report is still pending, and it's uh, nearly 17 years, and uh, more people are getting killed, shot up, uh, businesses are affected. Even the current uh, national general elections, the outlook globally, regionally, doesn't look good for Papua New Guinea. So I say that uh, it squarely boils on um, on government or lack of political will at the highest level to take ownership of the uh, gun issue. It will never uh, change. It's going to get worse. Why do you think there is no political will when there is such an obvious problem with these guns? If you read the guns report, you will understand the background of why people have guns. See, up in, mainly up in the highlands, traditional warfare has always been use of traditional weapons, bows and arrows, mainly shields, daggers, and spears. And because it's much easier for them to acquire a gun, a high-powered gun or a homemade gun, to continue to fight against uh, traditional en- enemies. 
And sadly, I, say, I state it with, uh, with no regrets, sadly, most of the prevalence of guns uh, happen up in the highlands uh, region of Papua New Guinea, where all the senior politicians come from. So you can understand that on one hand, we have a national crisis, but on the other hand, there's issues of uh, accountability and responsibility by, by uh, responsible political leaders, uh, mainly up in the highlands, to address the issue. We've now gone through this hellish election. Many people across the board have said the worst election in PNG's history. There's so much violence. So do you think now those politicians will somehow find the political will to make change? Yet to tell. It's a wait-and-see game. The indications are that they won't address it quickly. I think the status quo will remain because, like I said, most of the people in tribal zones uh, allow the tribal fights to continue for, for whatever gains that they have. It's regrettable, but as a, a responsible leader of Papua New Guinea, I, I say it without any regrets that uh, a lot of our leaders, political leaders, condone the, the actions of uh, tribalism using uh, weapons. Uh, whilst the Prime Minister, the last former Prime Minister, James Marbury, said that, that he will take uh, tough actions against those people using guns, uh, we, we are yet to see the 11th uh, session of Parliament, how far to what extent they will take responsibility. But I, I say squarely that uh, it all boils back to a lack of political will. I think the other uh, very important co- concern that we expressed in the gun support in 2005 is that there's no investment in taking care of the welfare of policemen and women. And at the same time, the uh, security forces have been starved of necessary resources to build their capacity, capability to combat lawlessness and, in this case, fight against uh, use of guns and drugs. At the same time, it, it uh, links into law and justice sector where uh, aspect of prosecution is non-existent. So we, we, we're just in a quagmire and it's not getting any better, the security outlook of Papua New Guinea. Your original report suggested 244 changes that should be made. If you yes. wanted to just narrow it down, what are the absolute key things that should happen or need to happen? Well, if I say if I was the Prime Minister, I will completely suspend the guns, the Firearms Act and make it illegal. Make it illegal to own a gun by any citizen except for the security forces. That's period. That's the way I'll take those measures. So that would be the critical first step. Yes. There's no need for Papua New Guinea citizens to own a gun. It's simple as that. And we should draw legislations and policies around that statement, that end statement, so that we, we support the view that no unauthorized person should have access to a gun, whether it's uh, homemade or factory-made. The revival of tourism in the Pacific is providing a much-needed boost to the regional economy as more and more island countries reopen borders closed since the start of the pandemic. The Asian Development Bank this week released a revised economic outlook predicting a growth of 4.7% in the regional economy this year, rising to 5.7% next year. Joining me is one of the report's authors, ADB Pacific economist, Kara Tinio. Bulakara, welcome on Pacific Waves. Tell us more about the latest forecast. We are now expecting the region to grow by 4.7% this year. Um, that's after contracting 
for two years in 2020 and 2021 due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and the forecast that we're expecting now, uh, the growth we're forecasting now for 2022 is a bit higher than what we had initially forecast in April, uh, which was 3.9%. So this is driven largely by um, improved visitor arrivals, especially in Fiji. They, you know, we were expecting them to grow this year, but uh, the visitor arrivals and, of course, the impact that has had on the economy, that's been much better than, than was initially expected. So that's driving a lot of this growth forecast upgrade. And then we're expecting um, a faster growth in 2023 as, you know, we're expecting uh, recovery from the pandemic next year and um, continued improvement, especially in our tourism-dependent economies now that it seems to be easier to to keep borders open now. Obviously, Fiji, a shining example of, of how well things are going. Any other comparisons in the region in terms of, I know Samoa just opened this week, um, FSM is opening despite a COVID outbreak, yeah. and a few of the other smaller Pacific countries just sort of slowly opening, but some of them only mm-hmm. with their known destinations like New Zealand. Like, yes. how are we seeing more of a slower sort of response in those sectors? Um, I think our, our expectations were largely that borders would reopen this year. So these reopenings that are happening, we're glad to have a timetable on it. It was more of expectations previously. So the borders are reopening this year as expected. So there isn't really much change in our forecasts for, for many of the other smaller economies. Uh, however, we do have to um, you know, point out that community transmission is that that's the bigger that's the bigger factor that's that's driven some of our growth downgrade so we're estimating small uh negative uh growth in Samoa and Tonga Tonga largely because of the impacts of the volcanic eruption and tsunami and Samoa because um they have experienced uh, community uh, transmission of covid so you know they've had to lock down, and these lockdowns there they they have affected um, business activity as we've we've observed in in other countries. So um, with that this is why we're expecting a similar impact in Samoa. Another unexpected um, impact was the war uh, in in Ukraine. Yes. Um. How has that um filtered down to the Pacific? Largely, the Pacific. Based on based on our research, it does not have much direct uh, trade or investment linkages with Europe or the Russian Federation or Ukraine. Uh, the impact has largely been on uh, commodity prices. So, uh, you know, Ukraine is a big supplier of wheat and then Ru- the Russian Federation is very active in uh, the global fuel trades. And, you know, many Pacific economies are very dependent on uh, imported food and especially imported fuel. So the higher prices in the global market has already filtered through to the consumers, unfortunately. Um, That's because, you know, higher fuel prices have made transport costs more expensive, as well as the fuel itself being more expensive as Many of us, even here in the Philippines, we've observed at the fuel stations, at the pump price, they're very, very high. Uh, so that's been the, the main impact 
and you know it it is amplified particularly because so many of the pacific economies um they're also very remote so you know transport costs to import essentials like you know food and fuel and medical supplies um they can be quite high as a result for forgive me if i'm using the wrong terminology yes. here but sort of minerals commodities from the pacific mm-hmm. that are exported how are the how are the markets doing there i think there's some benefits but also some that have not benefited so well well um yeah you're right uh the the prices of mineral commodities have also increased uh and that we're looking we're expecting that to be good news for papua new guinea which i think uh is the you know main exporter of mineral products in 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 our region we are just awaiting you know updated data to see how how the export sector has fared they they do track their earnings and the amounts that they've been able to export so we're looking forward to seeing that what other sort of external shocks are you sort of watching and monitoring in terms of of what could be coming in the future that might affect your um projections well uh, right now the pressing stories of course are the ongoing pandemic uh, as well as the impacts of the russian invasion of ukraine uh however climate change as as we all know working in the region it's uh it remains a huge concern and it it did not stop during the pandemic we had cyclone Harold very early in the pandemic and you know the the experiences with cyclone Harold it illustrates that the pacific has to deal with shocks from from climate change and of course uh the disaster in Tonga uh earlier this year and the the these things have helped uh really amplify the costs and the impacts of of these shocks they're you know they they combine and the cost of reconstruction rehabilitation safeguarding health um they they go up as a result so uh adb has not stopped working and i know that the pacific governments have not stopped working as well to address um climate risk and disaster risk resilience so uh, a big part of this issue of the pacific economic monitor highlights those efforts um on the country level to address uh specific concerns such as you know water security in Kiribati very important especially at this time and we also uh spotlight a bit the work in ADB the the facilities and the resources that we have available to support disaster risk and climate risk resilience in in our pacific member countries that brings us to the end of pacific waves for today remember you can download us free to your device from spotify iheart apple podcasts and if you're using apple please leave us a rating so others can also find us mitaki mata arirang